continue our study of the Lord's Supper, one of two signs that Jesus Christ left with the church before he ascended into heaven. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, in addition to the preaching of the gospel as means of grace. Lord's Day 29, page 885 in the back of your songbooks. If you go to page 885, I'm going to read 78, 79, and then 80 from Lord's Day 30. These three have to do with abuses of the Lord's Supper and a call to use and view the sacrament rightly. Question 78, do the bread and wine become the real, that means the physical body and blood of Christ. No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And Paul used the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. How does the Lord's Supper differ differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. And so let's read of that kind of idolatry in Numbers 21 and 2 Kings 18. With two passages we'll read. Numbers 21, page 152. Let's start there. A powerful, meaningful sign, the bronze serpent. Page 152. Israel is wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, and this is part of their wanderings. Numbers 21, verse 4, from Mount Hor. They set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God 
and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food, this, this manna. We're sick and tired of it. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the serpent, the bronze serpent, and live. Wow. Second Kings 18. That wonderful sign is corrupted and turned into an idol. 2 Kings 18, 1 through 6. One through six, page 382, 382. Second Kings 18, one through six, in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, his mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. This is God's word, and may he bless our hearts and lives by it. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, superstition lives deeply in the human heart. What is superstition? It's attributing magical or protective or saving powers to objects, things, or to actions, rituals. Like getting up on the wrong side of bed can ruin your day. So careful. Protective power in a certain action or ritual. Or wearing a certain pair of socks can help you win the race. Or doing the sign of the cross will win you a home run. It's natural for the human heart to gravitate from faith in God personal relationship with God, trusting in him 
to trusting in objects and actions and rituals and basically trusting in human works. And that idolatry lives so deep that we can even take God's own signs and symbols, which he used as a way to lift our eyes up from the symbol to God and his grace and to assure us. And to begin to devote our hearts to the object, the symbol, the sign instead. That's what people have done with the cross. The cross is a beautiful symbol of what Christ did for us. His death saved us. But people have put their trust in that physical thing instead. And if they hang on to it, they feel like they're protected and they're safe. But they're not trusting in what was done on the cross, the one who gave his life. They trust in the symbol. And so something beautiful becomes something very ugly. You can believe in the cross in an idolatrous way. And that's what Israel did with the bronze serpent that Moses made. And that's what the church in the Middle Ages did with the Lord's Supper, perverting it into the idolatrous mass. And this is a temptation that still lives in one way or another in God's people throughout the ages. Superstition lives deeply within the human heart. But God in his grace and mercy has lovingly provided reformers. Men from God who rescued the church from its superstition and unbelief and brought about a revival in the faith and brought us back to the gospel and to the proper use of the signs of the gospel. And that's what we see in this Lord's Day and the reforming of the Lord's Supper. God's powerful sign we see was corrupted by idolatrous hearts and then restored by God's gracious revival, reformation. God's powerful sign, our idolatrous hearts and God's gracious intervention, his gracious restoration his powerful sign, first of all, God gives signs for us to use in worship. And these signs are a powerful reminder and assurance that the gospel's real. Our eyes and our hearts tend to drag down by the troubles of life. And we have a hard time looking up and believing that the gospel's real. Like Abraham saying, but how can I know for sure this land is mine? Because when I look around, I don't own any of it. And he gave him a sign to help him lift up his eyes past the sign to God and his promises, to God's Christ and his saving work. The Old Testament had many visible signs as pictures and types of Jesus Christ the Lamb of God who was coming to take away the sin of the world. And most of these signs and symbols have been taken away with the coming of the reality in Jesus Christ. And whereas Old Testament worship tended to be more visual, New Testament worship tends to be more spiritual because we have the reality. 
But because our reality, Jesus Christ, has gone to heaven, Christ has left us with two signs to help us lift up our our, our drooping hearts to heaven and see him there through the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, one of the many signs he gave in the Old Covenant was the bronze serpent that Moses made in the wilderness. We read in the there that the people rebelled in their unbelief. They got mad at Moses and mad at God that all we get is this old manna. We're sick and tired of it. And God punished their unbelief in the wilderness by sending fiery serpents, poisonous serpents. It would bite the people and they would die. And the people repented. We've sinned. They said to Moses, please pray to the Lord for us. And Moses did as the mediator. And the Lord heard and answered the prayer. He said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, so anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Wow. Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he could look to that bronze serpent on a pole and live. Now, they didn't trust the bronze serpent to save them. They were to look past it, through it, above it. That's what signs are for. You don't stare at the stop sign as if it can save you. It's to tell you to stop so you don't get hit in the intersection. You look past the stop sign. So any sign, you look past it to the reality that it points to. and It appointed to God of grace who would save them from death. Jesus said, that was a sign of me, the bronze serpent. John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It was a sign, a sacrament of the Christ. The bronze serpent, again, didn't give life to anyone. They were to look through and past the serpent to the God who saves life to Jesus. Jesus, God's son, who was later sent to hang from a pole so that all who are perishing in their sin are bitten and dying may live. What a powerful sign God gave them. In that sign, God is saying, I have conquered the serpent and the plague of death caused by the serpent. That's what Jesus is about. The serpent conqueror, the serpent killer, and the killer of the death that comes through the serpent. So we may live. He doesn't have to give signs. But to help our weak faith look up to him. Help us remember his word and work of salvation and nourish and strengthen our faith. He tells us again through signs, I'm your savior. I love you. I've sent my son to conquer your sin. To conquer your death and give you life and fellowship with God. And that's why he gave us the Lord's Supper. It's a powerful, gracious reminder. But the power of the Lord's Supper isn't in our faith. It's not in our active remembering. It's a means of grace. The power of the Lord's Supper is in the Holy Spirit who was chosen to use the supper 
as a way to remind you and to lift up your hearts to heaven. It would have no power if the Holy Spirit did not attach himself to that. That's why we're not free to invent our own sacraments and say, hey, this could be nice. Hey, I saw them do that. Let's try that. No, no, no. He gave us two. And that's where God reveals himself to believers. The Lord's Supper. It's powerful because the Holy Spirit is attached to it. It's meant to be powerful. And God wants to use us to use it that way. In fact, that's why he called the bread his body. And the cup, the blood of the covenant, which I'm pouring out. Because he wants us to associate the action, the sign, with what he did for us on the cross. It's, it's meant to be a strong association. I see the bread I see the wine, I take it, I eat it, I drink it, and I associate the feeding of my body immediately with what Christ did for me on the cross to give me the forgiveness of sins, to take me to God and to give me a place in God's family and at his supper. Association, that's what it's for. We're truly, says Paul, participating in the blood of Christ when we take the cup. And we're truly participating in the body of Christ when we take the bread. It's meant to be powerful like on a hot summer day. You see a billboard of a sweaty glass of Coke being poured on the rocks and a glass cup and you don't climb up for the billboard and lick it because it's not going to quench your thirst. But, and you know, but it's a powerful reminder that you should stop in at the next store and get some Coke. If you really think Coke will quench your thirst. But that's the idea. It's a powerful reminder, a suggestion given to us by the Holy Spirit to lead us past the sign, past it, to the Christ to God's love, to hear God saying, I love you so much. You have a place at my table. I want to have supper with you. You're my friends through Christ. It's really an amazing thing. Jesus is really present there at the supper, not physically to our teeth, but spiritually to our minds and our hearts and our souls. He's communicating to us through the signs making himself present to our hearts by faith. So here's the one error we want to avoid. We, we, we don't want to turn it into an idolatrous superstition, but we don't want to empty it out so that it has no power and no meaning and who cares, it's just a sign. That's what some have done with it. There's just a whole lot of human remembering going on. So it becomes our own work, the sacrament. Mm-mm. It's the Spirit's work. It's the Spirit's power. It's the Spirit talking to us, telling us the message of God in Christ. As question and answer 79 says, the Holy Spirit wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge 
that all Christ's suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. So let's not take it lightly. We can be very careless about the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and treat them as if they don't matter. I can be there or I cannot be there and it doesn't matter. It's just a sign. Or we can come without any kind of examination or preparation. We hope to take that up in the next sermon from the Heidelberg Catechism on this. Come in a worthy manner. But we can come very sloppy manner, very careless, very thoughtless. Oh, we're having Lord's Supper this morning. Oh, wait. Haven't we been communing with Christ all week and preparing our hearts to worship him? Haven't we seen in our lives all week, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Lord, show me. I need to see your grace yet again. And I need this reminder that you are my God and you love me for Christ's sake because I am losing hope. It's a powerful sign and it's meant to be. And let's not empty it of its power just because it gets abused. And that's what we see secondly, our idolatrous hearts. We don't know how long the bronze serpent was used as a symbol for healing to lift their hearts beyond the serpent to the Savior for help. Maybe it was just for that plague. And then afterward, it was stored somewhere, put in some museum as a memory of God's work in their time of need. So we're not told what happened to it, but somewhere... It transitioned from a sign of hope to an object of worship. And they actually started sacrificing to it. And the thing that was meant to be looked past, through and past, up to heaven, became a stopping point. And they looked at it and stopped there and said, this thing will save us. And they gave it a name, Nehushtan, which comes from the Hebrew serpent. Snake, let's bring an offering to the snake. (laughs) Doesn't sound good, it's not good. The snake God, what a perversion of God's good gift. What a perversion of a powerful sign of salvation. And what a superstition to put your faith in an object that cannot save or heal. Put your faith in that instead of Christ alone who hung on the cross to conquer Satan, the snake, and death for us. Oh, this was an abomination. It was highly offensive to God. And it was because of this act of idolatry that God was sending the Assyrians, who was, they were busy invading the northern kingdom and, and taking them exile, taking away their land. And now he was banging on the door of Judah to do the same there. God was removing the lampstand from from Judah because they were not trusting him. They were obsessed with superstitious rituals and idol worship. This was during the days of King Ahaz, the worst king or second worst that Judah had. And when you look through history, there is that constant idolatrous tendency in the human heart to turn aside from God and put our trust in creatures and works. To trust in the symbol of the cross and hang on to it and believe that thing will protect you rather than look past it to the cross of Jesus Christ and 
his work finished for us. And what happened to the bronze snake in Judah also happened to baptism and the Lord's Supper in the Middle Ages. The Lord's Supper was perverted into something called the Mass, which became an object of worship in the Middle Ages and still is today. Here's what happened under the influence of a medieval theologian and philosopher, Thomas Aquinas. The church came to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ physically entered into the bread and the wine during the celebration of the mass. And when the priest, that was the priest's action, when he said, this is my body, hoc est corpus meum in Latin, that's when the transition occurred. But what are you doing when that happens? Suddenly the sign which is meant to be gone through to lift you up becomes the dead end, the stopping point. Oh, he's in it now. So let's trust in the bread and the wine instead. And it became a gross and a condemnable idolatry. Yes, it Aquinas, but Jesus said, this is my body. Well, he was sitting there at the table when he said that. They did not take a bite out of his arm or his leg. He also said, I am the bread of life, but that did not turn him into a loaf of bread. He also said, I am the true vine, but he did not become a vine in somebody's vineyard. It's figurative language. It's metaphor for association. It's sacramental language. It's for association, so we associate the one with the other, but not for identification so that the one becomes the other, and that's what they did. And now we got another problem. If the bread or the body and blood of Jesus in heaven actually now enters into the bread and wine or the bread and wine are changed into it, suddenly you have a reenactment now of the cross and a renewal of Calvary. And now the priest becomes the mediator on Christ's behalf. So it becomes a dead end on both fronts. The bread and the wine now are the object of worship and they would bow before it. And the priest became the deliverer. And instead of leading the people to Christ, the mass hid him from the people. The focus went off the Savior, onto the sign, where it was never meant to be put as a stopping place. And we shouldn't imagine that this kind of superstition is far away from us, and that we could never be guilty of this kind of thing. Maybe we're not exactly guilty of that. But is it possible that we can turn the Lord's Supper into a superstition in other ways? Let me give three examples. Three ways in which this can happen. On the one hand, we can become guilty of ritualism. That we don't look past the sacrament to Christ. We just believe that this is important and somehow this gets me right with God. This keeps me in a good spot. So I better make sure that I'm there. 
I got to do my religious thing. I need my injection of grace. I got to stay safe. So I make sure I go and all is well. And it's empty of faith. And not looking past it at all to the Savior, not relying on Christ's finished work, not hearing God say, I love you, not being drawn into a closer fellowship because, well, we're not coming in faith. Indescribable gift that God has given to us. The death of his son on a cross. May the supper take us there. May we come to the supper prepared to go there. Wanting to see that. Here's another way, a second way in which we can turn it into a superstition and an idolatry. We can so fear the sacrament that we don't dare touch it in case lightning strikes us. As though power can come out of the bread to destroy you. We can spend a whole lifetime afraid of the sacrament as though it has some power in itself to destroy us. And what's happened is our eyes are focused on the sign and we don't see past it to our gracious God and Savior who is saying, come to me, all you are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And we don't hear God saying, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And we don't hear him saying, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. It's like, the sign became a dead end. A third way we can turn it into a superstition is we can elevate it to a point where we misunderstand it. And what God meant to be used often, we say, oh, no, 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 just a few times a year because otherwise we might desecrate. We might make it unholy. And then what's happening there is your eyes are off the meaning, off the Christ and onto the sign itself. Then we're danger in danger of turning into a superstition. So it happened in the Middle Ages. For most time, the mass was performed for them to watch. And only once a year could they actually partake of the wafer because we don't want to, we don't want to abuse it. Well, God in his grace restored Judah from this abominable idolatry and he restored the church also in the time of the Reformation. We see that thirdly, God in the days of Hezekiah did nothing nothing short of shocking and completely unexpected because he was a son of Ahaz. Ahaz was bad. He's the guy that went to Damascus and saw pagan worship there. He saw a pagan altar and he said, I want that for my temple in Jerusalem. And he had the priest get a blueprint of it and took the blueprint home and they built one. And they put that altar to a foreign God in place of the bronze altar that God had required. They put the bronze altar to the north side, put this pagan altar in center place, And another thing Ahaz did is he offered his babies, his own children to Molech, Hezekiah's brothers, his own siblings. So we think it's game over. 
And suddenly, as it were, out of nowhere, God raises up a son, Hezekiah, who's one of the best, if not the best, reformer ever brought to the land of Israel. And God intervened. But God, who's rich in mercy, great in love, intervened. And he raised up a strong and faithful man, Hezekiah, who like a new David, removed the high places, smashed the pillars, broke down the Asherah, and crushed the bronze serpent Nehushtan into pieces. And the Lord was with him, and he went on to institute one of Israel's greatest revivals in worship. He led Judah back to Jesus Christ. They celebrated the Passover under his direction like it had never been celebrated since the day of Solomon for 200 years. Well, that's what the Lord did for his church in the time of the Reformation. Speaking against the idolatrous mass was fatal. It meant arrest, imprisonment, and death. But it was so contrary to the gospel of free grace in Christ It was so insulting to the cross, the finished work of Jesus, that Wycliffe and Huss and Latimer and Cranmer and Luther and Calvin and Farrell and Bootser and many others were determined to remove it from the church and smash the mass into pieces. And by God's grace, they did this and they restored to us the Lord's Supper in all its rich, evangelical, Christ-centered significance and nourishment It's the beauty of the Reformation. The gospel restored to us that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And along with that was the returning of the Lord's Supper, which proclaims that message in sign and seal. And we read what we read in Lord's Day 29, 28, 29, and 30. And in the Belgic Confession, and expressed in all our liturgical forms. And what can we say but thank you, Lord, for restoring us. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us from that Christless business. Thank you for bringing us back to the gospel. Keep us there. Help us to make the most of the spiritual banquet as a way to rise up to Christ. And here's the beauty of the Lord's Supper. We're not dragging Christ down to us here. That's not how he's present in the Lord's Supper, spiritually. But the Holy Spirit at the table is lifting us up to Christ in heaven and binding us more tightly to the forgiveness of our sins and to the likeness of Christ and to fellowship with our God in his covenant of grace. That's what he's doing when he says, this is my body, which is for you. Here, oh my Lord, I see you face to face. Hear what I touch and handle things unseen. Here, grasp with firmer hand eternal grace and all my weariness upon you lean. This is the hour of banquet and of song. This is the heavenly table spread anew. Here, let me feast and feasting still prolong the brief bright hour of fellowship with you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you 
for your wonderful goodness in giving us the Lord's Supper as a reminder of the pure gospel of grace in Christ Jesus. Thank you that in addition to the preaching of the word, you give us the second means to be lifted up to Christ in heaven who came down to earth to offer his life for us once as a complete sacrifice finished for us on the cross and then rose again and went back to heaven to open a door for us so that we might belong to heaven. And thank you for reminding us of yourself continually so we don't lose our way in this world. Oh, protect us from taking those reminders and turning them into idols. But help us always to look through them and pass them to you, the gospel. Oh Lord, keep us before you. Keep you before us all the time. In Jesus we pray, amen.